Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. You know, synthesizing an essential definition of worship is always a perennial problem. Many theologians and authors have tried, several have given us very helpful definitions, yet few are fully satisfactory. And part of the problem is trying to develop an understanding of worship that encompasses the essence of worship regardless of the religion, so worship broadly conceived, but that also incorporates a particular biblical Christian understanding as well. Well, one of the ways to narrow in on a good definition of worship is to trace the idea of worship through the storyline of Scripture, which is what I intend to do in this episode of the podcast. Creation itself provides the foundation for understanding not only the nature of God and mankind, but also the essence of their relationship in worship. God, the sovereign initiator, publicly revealed himself through what he had made. The creation itself, scripture teaches us, displays God's nature and glory. But God revealed himself in a unique way by creating Adam and Eve in his own image. And so God's self-revelation provides the fundamental basis of worship as expressed there in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Yet God created Adam and Eve not simply to be a revelation of himself. He created them in order to nurture a relationship with them, to dwell with them in perfect communion. And so in order to do this, God created the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2 as a sanctuary in which he could walk with Adam and Eve, as we find in Genesis 3.8. Man's purpose in this garden, according to Genesis 2.15, was to work it and keep it. And what's interesting is that Hebrew scholars note that the underlying terms in that phrase, work it and keep it, mean far more than a gardener's task, which is how we typically conceive of it. And that fact is apparent because of the absence of thorns and weeds at this juncture in human history. They didn't need to do the gardener's work. The Hebrew words here, avid and shamar, are frequently used throughout the Old Testament to describe the spiritual service and duties of the Levites in the temple. And so what is clear here is that this phrase was used by Moses in Genesis 2.15 to describe a priestly work in the sanctuary of God's presence. And so the basic ideas about the nature and function of what later would become formal corporate worship are established right there in the creation event. God reveals himself through his creation and places Adam and Eve in the sanctuary of the garden where he dwells with them and walks with them in communion as they serve him and keep his commandments. That relationship between God and man doesn't exist somehow for its own sake, of course, but it brings glory to the creator. As the image bearers walk with him and obey his commands, they evidence a complete satisfaction and trust in him, and they therefore give him ultimate praise. Those are the fundamental building blocks of worship established in the first couple chapters of Genesis. But then in chapter 3, Adam and Eve's fall into sin, their disobedience of God's commands, was essentially failure to express complete dependence and satisfaction in their creator and bring him glory. And so really, sin was a failure to worship him acceptably. 
This broke the communion they enjoyed with God and propelled them out from the sanctuary of God's presence. After they sinned, Genesis 3 tells us they heard God walking in the garden and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God. They recognized their unworthiness to walk with him. Their sin created a separation between them and their creator and then they were forced to leave the sanctuary. They were never again able to draw near to the presence of God. But before God drove them from the garden, He initiated the solution to that broken communion. He enacted a covenant with them, wherein he promised redemption in Genesis 3.15. And then he pictured that redemption through atonement by slaying an animal and covering Adam and Eve's guilt with its skin. And that atonement pictured the restoration of the broken relationship, although for Adam and Eve and all humanity going forward, that communion would be limited by their sinful condition. And so the point here is that in in the creation fall event of Genesis 1 through 3, each of the essential elements of worship appear in their seed form. One, God reveals himself, initiates a relationship with his people. Two, God forms the boundaries of the relationship with his commandments. Three, the nature of worship then consists in this relationship of communion between man and his creator. Four, this worship takes place in the sanctuary of God's presence. Five, failure to obey the commandments of God prohibits communion with him. And then six, God provides atonement wherein man is once again enabled to walk in communion with him. Those are the core principles for any biblical definition of worship. Now, before showing how those building blocks continue to develop, In God's people going forward in the Old Testament, I want to make a tangential point that I think is worth considering. The presence of these essential elements of worship and creation account not only for their presence in the Judeo-Christian worship practices going forward, which we're going to look at in a moment, but they also account for the presence of these elements in pagan worship throughout human history as well. Many people have noted that the worship practices of Israel share elements in common with nations around them. And by the way, nations that formed actually earlier than the nation of Israel. Things like a sacrificial system, or a sanctuary, or priests. And it has led some, many, secular scholars to conclude that the worship practices of ancient Israel arose as mere evolutionary developments from other Near Eastern religions that came first. Even some evangelicals suggest that these these similarities reveal that when God instituted worship forms for Israel— he sort of contextualized worship in cultural forms and practices that they would understand. For example, Andrew Hill in his book on Old Testament worship argues that the institution of the sacrifices, quote, demonstrates God's willingness to accommodate his revelation to cultural conventions. Human sacrifice was practiced in ancient Mesopotamia, and Abraham was no doubt familiar with the ritual since he came from Ur of the Chaldees, unquote. 
So the point here is that because pagan nations came first and they have many of the same worship elements as later developed in Israel, secular scholars argue that Israel's worship practices really came from the pagan worship practices. But even some evangelicals who do affirm the reality of God's revelation insist that even when God instituted worship, he borrowed those practices from the pagan nations around them. However, if we recognize that these elements of worship were created by God at creation, that provides an alternative explanation for the similarities between the worship of God's people and the worship of earlier pagan nations. Things like sanctuary, atonement, priests, these were in the consciousness and traditions of all descendants of Adam. And so that gives explanation for why they appear in the pagan worship practices, and then of course, why they would later appear in Israel's worship. And even more than that, the differences between the worship of Israel and other nations far outweigh their similarities. So what I've been suggesting here is that the building blocks of worship were established in the first few chapters of Genesis. And those elements persist throughout scripture, even as their external manifestation becomes at times more complex and more specific. The exodus of Israel, for example, and the establishment of the Mosaic law, in a sense, codify those elements and give them more specificity those elements that had been established at creation. Once again, in this period in Israel's beginning, God was the initiator of the contact through his self-revelation to Moses in the burning bush. The purpose of that meeting at the burning bush was to reestablish a relationship between God and his people, according to Exodus chapter 3. But sin prevented Moses from fully drawing near to God's presence. God commanded him, do not come near, take off your sandals for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. God accomplished his people's deliverance from their bondage through atonement in the Passover event, as recorded in Exodus chapter 12. He led them out of Egypt with his own presence in the form of pillars of cloud and fire in Exodus 13. He led them to the foot of Mount Sinai, where then he revealed himself to them. And then Leviticus chapter 9 tells us, All the congregation drew near and stood before the presence of the Lord. And God spoke to them face to face, Deuteronomy chapter 5 tells us. But because of the sinfulness of the people, God placed clear limits on how closely the people could draw near to him. And Moses alone served as a mediator between the people and God. Again, all of the elements that we saw developed in Genesis are present in the exodus of God's people and their encounter with God at Sinai. God's instructions concerning the construction of the tabernacle also reveal a sort of visualization of the worship elements that he had instituted at creation. This structure, the tabernacle, served as a sanctuary of God's presence, reflecting the sanctuary of the garden in Genesis. Exodus 25 says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And so drawing near to the tabernacle was to draw near to the very presence of God himself. And each piece of furniture within the tabernacle symbolized both the presence of God and the relationship of communion that he desired with his people. The table of wood in the tabernacle signified communion with God, 
since in the ancient Near East, dining with someone portrayed complete fellowship with that person. In a similar way, the golden lampstand represented the presence of God in that it reminded people of the light of God that he created in in Genesis and symbolized his presence by that light. And also the lampstand symbolized the tree of life, hearkening back to the garden sanctuary and further reminding the people of communion in God's sanctuary. The altar of incense represented the intercessory prayers of the people, and so it also emphasized dialogue in relationship with God. And then finally, the Ark of the Covenant was the center of God's presence. God said in Exodus 25, there will I meet with you. But once again, because of the guilt of the people, barriers prevented them from drawing fully near to communion with God in his presence. The curtain surrounding the outer court prevented unlawful approach to God's presence. Only appointed priests entered the tabernacle itself. And then finally, God commanded that a veil be hung, separating the holy place from the most holy, the chamber that held the ark and the very presence of God. Only the high priest was permitted to enter that place, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so God instituted his sacrificial system in order to provide atonement and at least partially and temporarily provide access to his presence. And so once again, you can see God using those building blocks of worship that he instituted at creation to construct the formal worship practices for the people of Israel. However, what the tabernacle also reveals is that these essential worship elements were not simply instituted at creation. They are also, in fact, representations of the essence of the worship of heaven itself. Exodus 25 tells us that God gave Moses the pattern for the tabernacle. And this is a pattern, Hebrews tells us in the New Testament, of heavenly things. In other words, the idea of worship visualized at creation and in the tabernacle and later the temple is modeled after the eternal essence of heavenly worship. So what this means is that the worship construct observed at creation and illustrated through the Mosaic system of Israel reveals the transcendent essence of worship. These are not arbitrary principles. These are eternal principles of worship. The fact that God reveals himself and initiates a relationship with his people. The fact that God forms the boundaries of the relationship with his commands. The fact that the nature of worship consists in the relationship of communion between God and his people. The fact that worship takes place in the sanctuary of God's presence. The fact that failure to obey the commands of God prohibits communion with him. And the fact that God provides atonement whereby man is once again enabled to walk in communion with him. Taking into account this fundamental essential picture of worship as expressed in both creation and the Mosaic system and reflects the very essence of the worship of heaven. I believe allows for a more complete recognition of the significance then of Christ's coming and for an overall understanding of the nature of Christian worship this side of the cross. Jesus himself revealed his deep identification with the temple 
and the worship that took place there as instituted by God himself by the fact that he cleansed it both at the beginning of his ministry as articulated in John 2 and at the end as we see in Mark and Matthew and Luke. Yet, Christ is not so much tied to the external rituals of temple worship, although, of course, he regularly participated in them while he was on earth. Christ is concerned with what happens at the temple because of the deeper importance that it signifies. And that's made clear by his discussion with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. He indicated there that although location was necessary as part of the Mosaic system, he told the woman, we Jews worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews. His coming removes the necessity of that system since it is only a visualization of the deeper spiritual realities of worship. He says, but the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And so Christ's coming allows him to emphasize the nature of communion with God. The core and essence of worship is this dialogue, this communion with God in his presence through the atonement that he has provided in the sacrificial death of his son, Jesus Christ. And now as we worship as Christians, those essential elements are still in place. God initiates our worship. Worship consists of communion with him in his very presence in the sanctuary of his presence. We worship based on the constructs and commands that he has given us. Our sin provides barriers that actually prevent us from drawing near to the presence of God. But through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter 12 teaches us that we are able to draw near to the heavenly temple, draw near to the real worship that takes place in the sanctuary of God's heavenly temple, where we draw near to God himself, speaking to him, responding to the truth that he has given to us as he initiated worship. Worship is that communion, communion with God in his presence, initiated by him and accomplished through the atoning sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and other podcasting services. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a rating. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at religiousaffections.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture.